Namaskar, a very good evening. This is Manoshi Sinha, author of eight books, including Second Source, my latest book, which is a bestseller. And I welcome you all here today to this event, to this talk, Kavita Kanaji's talk on women in the Itihasa and Puranas. And this event is hosted by Indic Academy in association with the William Canvas. So before we start, I would like to tell a bit about uh, Kavita Kanaji. Kavita Kane is the best-selling author of six books on women from the Indian ethics and uh, Puranas. All of her uh, books are bestsellers. She was born in Mumbai and grew up in other cities like Patna, Delhi and Pune. She is a postgraduate in English literature and mass communication from the University of Pune. She started her career as a journalist and worked for 20 years in various media houses, including Magna Publications, Daily News and Analysis, and The Times of India. After the success of her debut novel, Karna's Wife, she opted to become a full-time author. And I would like to tell a few words about Indic Academy as well. So Indic Academy is a non-profit seeking to bring an intellectual, cultural, and spiritual renaissance of Bharat. The organization enables public intellectuals to discover their potential, transform them as thought leaders and nurture them to become social entrepreneurs. Indic Academy also incubates, invests and assists social enterprises delivering a product, service or an experience that is based on Indic thought. These aims are achieved through scholarships, grants, courses, programs, networks, platforms and affiliates. Indic Academy also provides scholarships to students and seeks to establish relationships with the existing universities and institutions. We at Indic Academy conduct online and offline courses and programs, including workshops, seminars, conferences, and retreats. As regards networks and platforms, we enable public intellectuals to connect, cooperate, and collaborate, collaborate with one another by nurturing various networks, such as Indica Network, Indic Activist Network. I don't think they can do it. My voice is audible. Yeah. So, Indic Academy is steered by Sri Harikiran Padmamani. Uh, who also happens to be my mentor. I would now, I would now request Kavita Kanaji to please give us an, an insight and the women characters in all of his six books. Oh, I'm just going to supposed to talk. I thought you were asking a question. Is it not going to be an interactive thing or whatever? Yeah, last time we did an interactive session. No, no, no. This is you. Okay, fine. Yes, I can, I can definitely talk. I can go on talking about the books. Uh, good evening, and I'm a little sorry that I was late, but I think I can blame it very well on the Delhi travel. So, which is, I think, a universal aspect in all the cities of the country. You know? I think with all the roads getting dug up. And, uh, okay, now I'm supposed to talk about my six books. But I think I'll make it a more generic issue about women in. Itihas and uh, the ancient texts, uh, which we commonly think as mythology. I think first I'll start off with the word mythology, where I think it's a very wrong term uh, where uh, our epics and the Quran are concerned because uh, the moment we say mythology, we think of myths, and when we think of myths, we think of Greek mythology. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something which we have learned from school because mythology is comes from the word myth. So. I think when we are talking about the epics, it's definitely not myths because personally, I would always see it, it being an author myself, I think I see the epics as literary pieces 
they are epics, they are long poems. So I think uh, the first thing I appreciate about the epics is the literary value of it. And what really makes these ancient texts so different from, let's say, the other, is its huge philosophical content. So it's not just a literal story, it is not a story of gods and goddesses. It's rather a story of man, his faults, his fallacies, his follies, and the lessons we can learn from them. From them. In the sense, it's not, it's man versus him, man versus him and the world. So here we are talking about completely human uh, ethos, human uh, passions, human emotions, human experiences, human tragedy. In and by using literary techniques like, let's say, metaphors and allegories and fables, so that by conjoining them to stories of gods and goddesses, there is a certain, uh, we sort of humanize the gods and goddesses by relating them to the stories of man. So I think that is the reason why exactly why our uh, both the epics and the Qurans have existed all these thousands of years is because of this. Because when we see around us, we see names, we see everything. Around. We see what the music, art. I mean, when you see most of the art, most of it will be generated or sort of inspired by these texts. And that is the collective influence they have on us for so many years. For so down the ages, watered down through the centuries. And it's like, that is exactly why it's so fluid. And uh, the most common questions, uh, or other accusations we authors, uh, mythology authors are sort of accused of, is that, are you retelling those stories? I said, yes, I am retelling the story, but by retelling the stories, I am also revising them. It is a sort of revisioning them, giving the characters a new perspective, reinterpreting them. And I think that sort of freedom, now again the next question which arises is do we as authors have the freedom to work on this? Uh, here I think I'll ask, I'll keep an open question to all of you. Uh, let's say the story of Shakuntala. What do you know about the story of Shakuntala? I think I'll, I'll put the question out to you. What's the most common story of Shakuntala you know? Yeah? When Ram came and she takes the baby, she was medical daughter of Ramana in an ashram where this blue water came and saw her and it fell down. Yeah. So I'll just try to expand on this. I think then I think. The story is that she loses, he loses his memory uh, and, uh, yeah, and then I think he finds her through the, he sees a through a fisherman because the ring, yeah, I think he did. Now all this is the story written by Kalidas. This is definitely not the original story of Shakuntala. So what I'm trying to tell you here is that how Kalidas himself used the original story in the Mahabharata of Shakuntala and completely changed it, not completely, he changed it according to, he had the freedom and made it into the Shakuntala which we know of, the original Shakuntala of the Mahabharata and she never goes back to Dushyant at all because once she realizes he's not coming back, he does, she's smart enough or rather she's very extremely realistic enough to realize that 
she has abandoned her and i think she is a she is a fiercely proud woman and she definitely doesn't go back it's only she brings up a son she decides to have a child in fact i think you can very well be called the first single mother if she is a single mother before sita because chronologically shakuntala comes before sita so she is a single mother she brings him up in the ashram in the and but she also teaches him being because she knows that the the father was a kshatriya she brings him she teaches him the archery the the teaching of warfare and it when the child the the son is 12 years old and he asks her who my father is i think that is the time she realizes her son, her son is entitled to know who the father is and that is the time she takes him to dushyant and there is a confrontation where dushyant actually disowns her he like he sort of then refuses to <coughs> accept the that and one of the reasons she only accepts uh, bharat the son is because at that time he was childless so it's a very grim story of course it has a sweet end uh, in the sense that yes, she becomes the queen of kathira bora and dushyant and then the whole uh, dynasty starts but this was the story and how kalidas sort of romanticized it sort of embellished it and you see the shakuntala story what it is today now this is a retelling of so this has always happened i think that is the reason why our purans and the itihas they are so dynamic they are so they have been revised reinterpreted by different authors by musicians by all the all performing artists by all the creative people because you uh, are again i use a very uh, generic word like mythology mythology is used as a the very tool to convey ideas because it uh, in uh, eventually i think what i am doing in my books is using mythology using the stories using the epic using this character to give a certain contemporary sensibility to the stories of your you know if you, you are not just stories of the relay but why are they so relevant today because after a point you when you read them then you, you realize everything nothing has really changed you know? they still war they still violence they still jealousy there is still hate there is still uh, what love disappointment infidelity you when you actually see the epics you take any topic any topic any modern topic now is there i think except for incest i think one thing you can say i think we are uh, our epics do not have incest we might have gays we have queers we have everything we have all uh, you know the, that is the beauty of our epics is because of its layered identity and every time you read the story that single episode and that episode which say has been mentioned in the ramayana sort of changes in the mahabharata again it changes in the purana so by the time that itself shows a chronological sort of a entire morphing which has happened because not only uh, because of let's say patriarchy but other socio political reasons also for example like kalidas the reason why he i think romanticized dushyant uh, was because he was a royal poet he definitely could not show the king as a playboy who just uh, met a girl in the forest and uh, abandoned her so i mean this is these are the uh, i mean when you say when you see all this and then you realize it was the start of freedom of expression that an author had the freedom to take up a story from the text from the itihas from the purans and sort of change it according to the current uh, socio political situation kalidas did that and see what a beautiful story he wove around the story of the entire of shakuntala and i think 
this is the tradition which we have uh which we have already we always have had through the authors through the singers through the folk i mean folk i think here i should specifically mention folk stories because i think folk stories is something if we have canonized uh, our literature uh, i think folk story actually humanizes all the gods and goddesses by giving it a, not only a local flavor it is bringing down to the an extremely uh, microscopic uh, cultural uh, social economic uh, flavor when you see uh, example i think let's talk about lanka prince supanaka uh, i read a thread uh, where it was written that uh, she actually used ram and lakshman to take revenge on rama it was not a question of now this thread completely changed the story of what is there in valmiki drama so these are the folk threads which actually embellish uh, <clears throat> which we use it creatively and sort of weave a story and try to join the dots so uh, i think if i take let me take each book category i mean i'll start taking i think that's what uh, we are going to talk specifically about now. let me start with kardas wild first confession is that it was not my first choice my first choice was always umbela but uh, i had done 20 years of journalism and i decided to write a book and when i decided to write it was of course on mythology because being a literature student i knew how mythology could be used as a literary tool not only a literary a creative tool and uh, i was a fighting childhood was a die uh, die hard fan of uh, amar chitrakandas but it was when uh, in the 7th and 8th standard seventh and the eighth standard when my father i think seventh my father gave me sri raj gopal charit ramayana and mahabharata that is the time i actually realized i sort of the all those different stories of amar chitrakatha sort of got compiled you know it gave a sense of uh, not only cohesiveness it gave a sense of chronology if you read uh, his mahabharata uh, raj gopal he has given i mean he has done it exactly the way the mahabharata starts so by the time karna starts and that is what i tried to do in this book the entry of karna is exactly that is how karna also enters in the mahabharat he enters in that competition that is and that is almost midway i mean it's way down the so uh, when i started decided to write a book it was okay first not definitely fiction and not non fiction secondly i wanted to write on urmila because i think she was one character who completely fascinated me uh, even as a teenager pre teenager yeah but i have always found uh, urmila and lakshman more actually more exciting more uh, more human than say ram and sita because they were idealistic you know especially when you are they are idealistic figures uh, lakshman has a temper he fights he quarrels you know and his wife urmila now urmila again then she becomes again she is a complete enigma you don't know anything about her so when i started doing my research i realized seriously there was nothing about her except for three lines which said that she slept for 14 years and i said how am i ever going to write a book <laughs> so i think i was completely disheartened because you know it was like uh, and i'd heard a lot about urmila uh, written, written in the regional literature and everywhere it was the same i mean they had sort of uh, used those 14 years in a different way so i said okay let me just keep it aside i don't think i have the courage to write a book so then i started on karnataka he was the second favorite character and i'm i'm quite sure everyone agrees here he is the most gorgeous character in the epics of both the epics and more than that he is a 
he is a technically uh, like the greek say is a tragic character he had his flaws now we tend to forget his flaws you know we we've sort of idolized him so much that we forget that he was a flawed character and i think when i decided to write the book i knew i was going to write karnataka not or not going to with his flaws and his faults and how he was also responsible for his tragedy so now this i do not want him telling his own story and i, I definitely said ki okay let me write let me see him either through his wife side or his mother now his wife side i remember i think uh, the only person who might still like chat uh, is with my grandmother who was by the way definitely not connected with uh, mythology at all or any of these uh, ancient texts how only she used all these words only as similes existence you are uh, you, you you sleep like a kumbhakarna and you hog like a bakasur and you had long nails you have long nails like a kumbhakarna so those were the only connections i had about uh, if you talk about family uh, family what do you say influence so i remember asking her i said uh, uh, how, you know you know the vastaran i mean so i said how did karna do that and how did he go back to his wife so i remember she said so what Like must have accepted it, and I think that sort of I I was very dissatisfied with the answer. I think it sort of stuck in my head, and I said when I decided to say, I said okay, let me talk about talk about Karna to his wife. Now when it came to his wife again, I think uh, we have this common belief that uh, Karna is a bachelor. So the first reaction was oh Karna had a wife. Okay. I think that's the reason why I kept the title very simple. It was about Karna's wife, and then of course Bhushan is there. <coughs> but i do not want to write about vishali again because uh, in the marathi book written uh, here shivaji savant had already talked about her in detail and here also in fact even created a character called supriya to be a parallel to shubhadra because in his book written here uh, it is uh, draupadi and vishali uh, and supriya and subhadra so there's sort sort of a parallel in the story and i didn't want to interfere i said i do not want to corrupt these characters because i have i come from maharashtra and kurtanjay is like sacred in maharashtra so let me not touch it and that too when i'm doing it in english so i said i think i did the most audacious thing and i created a character and that i'm trying to say again is how the free the freedom of expression which we get through uh, the mythology is this or through the ancient texts is that I created a character only because I wanted that character to be a sort of a sutradhar who is going to tell the story of Karna, and who best but the wife, not even the mother, because the wife is there at every step of his way. So she becomes his conscience, she becomes his wife, she becomes his lover, she becomes his critic, and uh, I think she is one of his severest critic, and that's how the entire story unfolded. And uh, I think the book did well. The book did very well. and i think the courage of that book gave me the the success of that book actually gave me the courage to write the second book and that's how i said okay let me start on urvi again something which i really wanted to write and i think because i created urvi uh, such i think she's one of the most i love her because uh, she's a feisty she's fierce she she is sort of uh, uh, you know it's story of every woman i think uh, who is subjugated eventually by circumstances and events and uh, situations which are not in your control you know that arrogance which we have that we are privileged we have everything in our control and no actually it doesn't really 
it really doesn't happen that way at all in our life. And I think that was the story of Urbi. It's more about, it's not about a love story between Karna and Urbi at all. I think it's the most anti-war book I've written, uh, <coughs> besides I think the Pishikul's dynasty. Because I think Mahabharat is the strongest statement on anti-war. I think that is the basic, the most uh, modern and most uh, vehement uh, argument of the Mahabharat. It is anti-war. Because in the end, everyone are losers. So I think that was exactly the story of Karna's wife. And uh, she was a woman whom I wanted to mingle socially again with, with an Arjun, with a Bhishma, uh, with a Kunti, uh, with a Duryodhan. Uh, if I had her socially, I don't think she would have been able to be, to be part of the political intrigue or the uh, royal event which were happening. So, that I think I took that license and I got away with it. And I'm happy, thank you very much for liking, for really liking the book. And uh, so much so that Uri is a character in Wikipedia now. So, <laughs> so <coughs> then I think let me talk about now Sita's sister. Now Sita's sister came up, came up, it was almost like a personal uh, journey because we are women now. Uh, we all women. I mean everyone, I think uh, remember people, oh it's all about women, this whole book. But I thought, okay, women, fine, but I'm quite sure, I think even, even the men out here will agree that women are more fascinating than men. Imagine having five and six women, so completely a women-populated book. But I think the reason was also very personal because we are a family of women. We are three sisters, we have five daughters, I have two daughters, we have two, I've got three nieces, lots of boas, lots of masses. So it was a very girl, women, I, I was all, I, the first thing, I don't remember my mama, I remember my boa and I remember my masi. And of course even uh, <coughs> my mama literally were book leader, they were great women lovers. So I think it was, the, I think the feminine influence was huge in our family. So uh, when I this, when I came to know the Sita, I had four sisters. Like they were, that is something many people don't know, that there were four, there were two sisters and uh, two cousins. <coughs> And what did what did they do? And children, like girls, what did they do? Who was naughty? Who was the mild one? Who was the dominating one? You know, it always happened in sibling relationships. So I think that was the reason why I started off with Sita sisters. In fact, the whole thing was it was going to be Sita sisters. Because when I actually started writing the book, I realized no, I, I think it was getting too. I could not handle. I had to make someone a protagonist. So Urmila did become my protagonist. I, very cruelly sidelined Sita here. And uh, Urmila became a protagonist mainly because I think she is the most neglected character. Because uh, what happened to her during those 14 years? Okay, besides the sleep, I, mean, I took the sleep and then a complete <coughs> the 14 year old metaphor I took it. And I realized that she is catatonic in a certain way. But she also, it's also her own private exile. Her husband goes in exile. It was also her own private exile in the palace. And what 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 palace are we talking about? It was a palace where no Dashrath had passed away. There were three widows, widowed queens. There were these three girls. And Shatrugna, uh, that was the life in the palace. And here comes the political aspect of it. We are talking about a king, a kingdom and Kosala, which was one of the most powerful kingdoms. What happened in the palace is not only a personal Sarkov's story at all. It's also, I think, the uh, subtext of politics also because we don't realize. We think uh, Ramayana has this fairy tale uh, goodness about him. 
goodness about it. But uh, if you actually see the reason why the why did Ram have to go? It, he had to go away because of politics. What was the friction between the three? If there was between the three queens, again it was politics. In the end, politics and power, they were kings. So they, it is going to be a part of the main story. And how it affected the four sisters? Because they were four sisters who got married to the four brothers. And how, I'm quite sure the relation must have changed between from sisters to sisters-in-law. And I think that became the main fundamental uh, foundation of the book. And uh, each one, I hope, I did justice to all the four of them. Uh, I think Mandavi was, uh, I think, was one of the most modern uh, girls because uh, modern in the sense, she was the one who is more, I've, I've tried to show her the most, uh, not only flippant, uh, but she has a grouses and she openly voices it. So actually when you see all the four the sisters are suffering the same thing. It is Ram who goes to the forest, Sita does go with him. With this whole element of celibacy which all the four brothers follow. And the repercussions it has on the values. So all the four sisters suffer the same, three sisters suffer the same fate as Sita actually. In the, they had their own private exile, as I said, of loneliness, of separation. So when it comes, actually comes to it, it is, uh, uh, I think Sita's sister is not a love story between Lakshman and Urmila uh, at all. It is a story of separation, which is such a common experience in today's life. I mean, we talk about long distance relationships, we talk of, I mean, most of the couples, whether they are married, whether they are partners, this entire aspect of how to deal with loneliness and separation and coming out of it stronger and without subjugating yourself. You know, that is so important because I think through the expression of intellect, that is what Urmila actually, uh, she finds her own spiritual growth. And uh, I think these are all again, as I said, the other stories, the folk stories that she painted during those 14 years. You know, these are all snippets I found uh, when she painted the, the wedding uh, ceremony uh, for 14 years. So I just use that, okay, she's a creative person, she's an artist. <coughs> And, uh, and I think uh, there were many readers who were sort of disappointed because the story ended there. They wanted it, I think they are expecting a sequel. So I said no, I cannot use a sequel because seriously there is nothing about her nor the other sister. And more than anything, I think uh, again that was a thread. Uh, she was the only one who actually asked Ram that why did you uh, abandon my sister the second time. She is the only one with that. So that story, I think I used it in uh, Lanka's Princess. Because I sort of connected it there. Where I've shown Supanaka coming to Ayodhya and trying to create trouble there. So that was a part of unfinished uh, wish of the readers who wanted what happened to Urmila next. So I think that was the popularity of Urmila. Coming to the third book, I think Menka. I remember Menka was an extremely difficult choice because till now Urvi, they were, you know, we tend to see uh, all our characters, we tend to take, paint them black and white. And uh, what are epics and what are ideas and what are basically uh, all these ancient texts teaches you is there is nothing black and white. Life, in reality, through people, what is more important is the grades. So the grey characters, if you see, uh, you know, we sort of, uh, see them as very oversimplified embodiments. Uh, you see, either she is a baby or she is sort of a devil. 
So I think till now Urmila Urmi fell into the Devi section. Menka I think had a lot of rage in her. Lot. In the, when, because when I started, she just be, be, uh, besides seeing her as an apsara, we really don't we don't know her, we don't know anything about her besides she being an apsara. And this apsara again is like a woman. It's something very paradoxical because she's a woman with uh, extremely short. She's sort of a symbol of female sexual power, you can say, who uses sex as not only a means for their work, whatever assignment they are giving. They are using sex to <coughs> to for as a means of seduction. But what is very important is there are they what are they beyond that? Uh, they are women. They are uh, another very interesting part of the apsara, especially Menka, was that she abandoned her daughter, two daughters. She abandoned two. It's not only Shakuntala. It's also there was another daughter from uh, Vishwamitra, her husband. So all these stories, when I started actually joining the daughter, I realized Menka was an extremely interesting character, not just because of Vishwamitra, who himself is an absolutely huge character in, uh, through through the Ramayana, through the Mahabharata. You keep seeing him in different uh, <coughs> episodes and anecdotes. But she was a woman who was sent to destroy such a powerful man. So there must have been something powerful about her too. And when you see the character of Vishwamitra, he's not a very likable character. He is an extremely ambitious king. And because of an ego problem with a Rishi, with a Shir, he decides, I want to become a Rishi. It is not, it is, he when he realizes the power of knowledge. The power of knowledge is more than the power of politics. So when he realizes the power of knowledge, he wants to conquer that. And it is a typical king's attitude that I want to conquer it. So here first he has to conquer his ego. Now the whole uh, journey of Vishwamitra, if you see, is how he was actually made humble. And Menka was just one of the episodes which made him humble. <coughs> so when uh, there was another mention where she said that there was the most torrid romance in the epics. Uh, torrid romance. So all this time I, always, I think most of us assume that it was sort of a one night seduction and she had a child. No, it was a 10 year relationship. Now, a 10 year relationship is so hugely different from a one night seduction. So that actually made me uh, sort of make me go back to not only Menka, through Vishwamitra. Uh, how did, and I think that is the narrative, that formed the narrative of the book also, where <coughs> it starts with two different uh, characters and how I think Menka and Vishwamitra meet almost in the middle of the book where actually the two streams joined there. Because I wanted to show both were very alike. You know, they, were, they were powerful. They were almost selfish. And third, I think both of them were humbled in their own way because of the tragedy which happened in their life. And the tragedy, personal tragedy was, I think, Menka's personal bravery. I mean, if you actually see Menka, she, in her, when, when she falls in love with a man she's supposed to destroy, uh, the irony is that she tries to create a little heaven. She is a mortal person. She is a person from heaven. She tries to create heaven on earth. And when she realizes that the man she has destroyed, she has totally subjugated him. She has totally surrendered to her. Is that what she wants? Because by doing so, she has completely killed his ambition. So that, I think that 
her personal decision there that is the reason why Minka shows where it it sort of not only changed her life it was going to change his life and she changed made the choice to change his life because she would have lived happily as or he would have lived happily as Minka's husband they would have had a daughter they had a daughter Shakuntala they would have lived as a in the ashram and they would have uh, but he would have not become the Vishwamitra which he wanted the, this thing uh, was that he wanted to become a preparation now this whole aspect of sacrifice comes now sacrifice is said of we see it in a very moderate uh, term these days but the sacrifice was huge in the sense it was very selfless a eh? and more than that it broke both of them in their own way they changed as Menka changed as a person and so did Vishwamitra so when Vishwamitra curses now uh, uh, Menka the thing it was it was more more than a curse it is it is a detriment that she does not work. It is she becomes a personification of temptation. The life which she could have had, the life which she, she deprived from him by telling the truth. If she had not told him the truth, that she had received him in the right from the beginning, I think the story would have ended well, very well for both of, both of them. So I think Menka, we see Apsara, I mean, when you see each story of each uh, Apsara, when you see it is in a way tragic. Each one of has had a where they had to forego something. So here, 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 it was about a story of a beautiful, privileged woman who had everything. I mean, she had youth, she had immortality. But where immortality becomes a curse, where she sees the person in front of her, he is going to get old, he is going to die, and she is going to be young and uh, everlasting. So this concept of immortality in extremely human terms, I think that is what the story of uh, Venka and Vishwamitra is. The limitations humans have, actually, and actually also the endless opportunities humans have to carve out their own future. So that is, I think Venka was, the, if she was the reason for his destruction, she was also the reason for his resurrection. So that's how I think Venka's choice happened. And, uh, uh, she was, I must admit, that she was the most difficult character at uh, Azoro because uh, she was more grace than, let's say, white. As I said before, Urvi and Urmila were very white characters. And uh, uh, Menka's grace almost, they are, she just stops herself from becoming the. Then I think the fourth book, Supernova, was a com on a completely dark character. I think each book of mine has also be been my way of uh, my involvement as a writer and also um, how I try to take each character, each of my women characters as a challenge to myself because can I handle this character? I thought I would not be able to uh, handle uh, uh, Menka because uh, it, uh, Menka is again extremely uh, overt sexuality. Are we really ready to talk? Am I ready to talk about this? I think this is the first book which had, as someone said, steamy scenes. And I had to put them in because she uses sex as a weapon. It is her way of not only establishing establishing relationship. This is what she wants something, she uses it. That is the only way she knows, because that is the way that is the that is the only way seduction was a part of their personality. So I think uh, that uh, Menka Choice became a completely different book from let's say Karna's wife and Sita's sister. And the other extreme was again uh, Lanka's princess, where I deliberately 
she was an antagonist. A post, uh, I think, she's almost a caricaturized uh, antagonist. You know, we don't. She's this ugly woman with her roaring laugh. Which, by the way, she never laughed. Technically, it's only the serials which made her. Wow. But uh, she never laughed. I think if she had laughed, I think she had, she was a more humorous character. Things would have been nicer for her. But uh, she never laughed. I mean, you don't see her as a as laughing at all. And uh, she is tragic in her own self-created tragedy. You know, in the sense that a she is the sister of three powerful men. Three brothers are extremely powerful, and then you see her almost as a caricature who is all a trigger. You don't like a surpanaka. You cannot see a surpanaka. Uh, she is what mantra and kai kai are in the first half of the Ramayana. Without the surpanaka, I don't think Ram and Ravan could have even met. This whole thing of surpanaka started a war. I mean, she is actually the trigger point, pushes the plot forward. And more than that, so that is the reason. I think that is the reason why all each character, however small they are. I think they have a huge impact, and I think Surpana's impact was exactly that. I think, mean, uh, and then people talk about Surpana. The first thing they talk about is cutting off of the nose, which uh, actually is one of the most violent episodes uh, in the, uh, the epic. It's more violent than the war itself, you know. But there is a reason for it. I think the whole reason was, uh, and I think in today's time it's sort of been misconstrued that uh, Lakshman did it to. Uh, because he could not, uh, I think this whole controversy is what he cut off her nose because uh, she, uh, she the whole thing was uh, what was the controversy? I think she, uh, was she wanted to marry him first and then Ram. No, the whole uh, the actually uh, here I think the whole uh, Ram Lakshman confrontation with uh, Surpanaka is this that there were cultural differences. I mean, they, if you see the three Kosala, Kishkanda, and then this is Lanka. They were three different, not only geographical areas, they were very culturally different. So you have a Surpanaka who is a very sexually confident woman who approaches these two men. They cannot handle it. And they sort of typically if you're not you're sort of uh, sort of uh, no no sort of try to make it up with a certain frivolity, a certain frivolity, which angers her. And instead of attacking the men whom she's angry about, she attacks Sita. Now that is the reason why Lakshman cuts her nose. Not because of, I mean, you cannot connect it with the uh, episode A. The thing is that this is his whole contention was. I think if he had his way, he would have happily killed her. But it was Sita who actually stopped them and uh, stops him and says no. This whole episode, and then of course it got a lot of suburban uh, uh, definitions and uh, interpretations of that. That because she was a woman, and no, it is not about gender because. Evil, I personally believe, evil has no gender. Evil is evil, whether it's a Holika, whether it's a Surpanaka, whether it's a Ravan. No, evil, we are talking about evil. You cannot say uh, because she is a woman, she is evil, or she is a man, is evil. No, it doesn't really work at all. Work that at all. Work like that. Because uh, I think I remember someone actually telling me about Holika that, uh, you know, Hmm. She was burned because uh, A, she was from a lower caste and second, she was a woman. I said A, she was not from a lower caste, B, not because she was a woman, because she was as evil as a brother. And who was actually killing an infant uh, nephew, uh, not infant, he was a young boy, he was killing an infant. So the evil is, again, sort of is related to Surpanaka because she is Ravan's sister. No, it doesn't happen because there was a certain, the evil is, why was she evil? If you say she is evil, there is a reason why she has to be evil. If Ravan was what he is, 
there is a reason why supernaka is what she is so i think i was more interested in telling her story i was not interested in telling painting her either as a sinner or a saint i was more interested in she being <coughs> telling her story in the sense she has a husband she has a son she has she has a personal life besides being the sister of a ravana bibishan and a kumbhakarna and that formed and more importantly she was the daughter of a rishi and a uh, and kekesi the mother so what she was i think as you say the in modern terms the most dysfunctional child in that would have been the uh, the most modern post modern word for her but uh, that was so evil is not always born it is created through a certain situation and this thread which i said mentioned right in the beginning was that she used ram and lakshman to take revenge on ravan was i think the perfect way of telling her story because that completely changed uh, the common perception we have of her uh, of the of her story because suddenly you find urbana kagon after that complete uh, that episode where she complains to ravan as ravan actually instigates the war uh, instigates the kidnapping of sita you don't see anything about her and then there are this little folk story where uh, she came back to ayodhya and she tried to create trouble again and i think i used that again and where again the whole story where she meets again uh, i love my books where i love uh, creating a situation where there is a dialogue of course imagine a fictional dialogue between when we took it was uh, lakshman and surpanaka not a sita or a surpanaka more than because i think i err against uh, lakshman and then i think i if i if you have read the book i have carried it forward there is a folklore in rajasthan which say that uh, lakshman was reborn and surpanaka was reborn and i've used that as a epilogue so i've tried to give the continuity of uh, the very complex relationship she had with lakshman uh, and uh, the story of an actually a vulnerable and lonely woman with because of a certain uh, assertive action of her she gets completely misjudged and that one certain when you are sort of when you are once you are accused of something it becomes sort of a series of things then you become part of it you become part of it sort of a vicious circle you become part of it and then you it's like a quagmire you're just getting you're drowning in the your own uh, mess you have made and then you have to get out of it and uh, the story ironically it seems rupanaka's body was found in the sea so that was again a, a little snippet i had while doing my research i read it so i think that's how i <clears throat> sort of ended it very there was a closure that there is a there, there is death of supernatural oh my god the fifth book the fifth book uh, uh it was uh, i think at the credit of no no i think the fifth book i think is also because not only satyavati the character of vishma if you see the first half of not first half the first quarter of the mahabharat which many of us don't know about i think that is the most is the most happening because there are so many twists and turns which is much more than what happened during the duryodhana during the kurukshetra war or when the pandavas and the kauravas actually come the first, i always found the first half very interesting right from the time of yayati and devyani and uh, sharmishta Uh, where they created. See this whole we talk about discord. 
Discord is also again a reason. It cannot be. Suddenly you can't. You are not. You have a cousin. You have a brother. Suddenly you don't start disliking him. There is a reason why. And many times you realize how we are brainwashed. The Discord also starts because of a certain stories family tells you about. It is sort of not only genetic. It is passed on. The dislike and hatred about uh, the family you have uh, uh, or the divided family you have. It is passed on. So. When you see the story of Sarmishta and Devyani, that that the discord starts there uh, between the Kauravas and the it goes way back then. And Satyavati, when actually Satyavati comes, when Satyavati enters the scene, and when you see Vishnu, the first history we really do not know anything about. Like even when I was reading about it and doing the research, it is very ironical that the Kauravas and the Pandas fought for the throne. And actually, the entire family of Vishnu, Shantanu. Shantanu was the third son. Shantanu had two brothers before him, and that family was known for giving up their throne for their brother. So it was there was no question. So a tussle for the throne was unheard of in this family. So that was the, that is the biggest argument, and that is how Vishnu becomes that entire wall. Where after Vishnu, things starts going downhill. Why? You know why? Is it because of the character of Bhishma himself? And then you realize Bhishma is such an enormous character. You see the physical chronology, the physical presence of Bhishma in the Mahabharata. He's there from the beginning till the end. So that huge character is, and in that there is an episode. And why is he Bhishma? He is Bhishma only because of Satyavati. From Devavrat, he becomes a Bhishma, and the reason for that was Satyavati. Who in herself again was extremely fascinating because I think she is. We talk about Draupadi as one of the most powerful characters. I think she was one of the powerful characters because she was very politically minded. She knew the power of politics. She knew the power of birth. She knew the power of privilege, and she knew the power of rule, the bloodline. And ironically, it was her bloodline. We talk about the Kuru. It is not the Kuru blood at all. It actually comes down to the Pandavas. What are we talking about? It is. It is. Satyavati is, and then again, when you see Satyavati in contrast to Kunti, there again you see such a difference. Because see the way Satyavati handles her legitimate son, and see the way Kunti handles Karna. That shows again a certain social disparity happened during Satyavati's time, and and of course Satyavati's story. If you actually see in the Wikipedia or anywhere, it's full of all these. She was a matsya, and there was an apsara, and there was a fish, and there was again the whole aspect of the fish. So I tried to demythify these stories and bring it, make it more humanized, because there is a reason why these stories are said, uh, are given uh, these sort of metaphors or allegories uh, with animals, because they are talking about common. It is actually a story of exploitation. If you see actually your song, Satyavati's story, it is a story of exploitation. But she never. She refuses to be a victim. She says she overcomes that, and she says, "Okay, if this is this was part of my journey, my journey again from now on will be. I will no longer be a victim. I will use the same thing. I will start using the same weapon which men use for me. So, uh, Satyavati is actually a direct product of what she has. But the, I think what is amazing about that woman is that." Not for a moment. I mean, even till the end, her regret when actually Vyas tells her about the tragedy which is going to happen, the Kurukshetra war. 
that is the time she refuses but till then she is completely immovable she is she refuses to surrender she refuses to see defeat the way she uses her two daughters in law the way she uses her bias by legitimate brand i mean she is almost ruthless and when you say ruthless here i am saying i will not say she has ruthless as a man i will say men as ruthless as her again here i would like to say that power politics there is no gender here it's about a person it's a person who has yes she has suffered what she had he sort of romanticizes this whole thing about she and shantanu but shantanu was an old man he was not a young i mean it's more this thing of she marrying a bishma why did not why did shantanu never think of marrying bishma you know he is a young he is a crown prince i mean any other father would have tried to see uh, hold a swayamvar or whatever for his son he is thinking about his marriage you know that shows the selfishness of a father which again is sort of a uh, Uh, an echo of what yayati did, you know, that family. So here, that is what I was trying to say. This whole Mahabharat, if you see, they are echoes of certain people, and the echoes are felt right down. So yayati, uh, Shantanu is almost a diluted version of yayati, who because of and then how Bhishma in his over his zeal to uh, be the devoted son, he goes he goes out of his way to create. To become a Bhishma, and how Satyavati or rather her father gets those promises from her, and that is how, from a fisher girl, she becomes a queen. <coughs> so this entire social disparity, how she handles the social disparity, and I think I tried. Of course, there's a lot of fiction in it because Satyavati's character, again, like most of the minor characters, protagonists being minor characters, I sort of fleshed them out through the medium lens. So, uh, Satyavati is a complete, a, completely a product of what Vishnu has done. I tried to see her through the episodes which she has with Vishnu. In fact, I read somewhere in uh, the Twitter today where she says she actually said, "No, I think she, uh, I like uh, Kavita Kanu's book, but she has cheapened it with romance. There is no romance of Satyavati and Vishnu. Please, no, not at all. They had an extremely powerful relationship because, as I said, they are physically there, age-wise also, for a very long time." And she has created Bhishma, so there is. It is not. It does not demean the relationship by calling it romance or sexual love at all. No, but they did love each other and they hated each other also, because it is here. It is completely a friction between black and white. If you see uh, Devrath and then how he becomes Bhishma and how he becomes ruthless in his oath. I mean, his oath becomes a burden for him, and not only burden, he refuses to see certain things. So in his righteousness, he actually becomes blind, and the reason for it is, of course, you will say it's Satyavati. So the relationship which they have is almost symbiotic, destructively symbiotic. So <clears throat> if they ever meet this reader, I say no. I, there was definitely no romance in my mind between <coughs> Satyavati and Bhishma. But, but yes, there is a certain. Uh, yeah. Why do you say romance is demeaning? स्ट्रॉंग रिलेशनशिप विच 
both are in a way possessive about each other which we are about friends which we are about we are even possessive about our enemies i think so so uh, their every decision both of them make they ask each other if you see that they are part of it so if you say vishnu was also a reason for the war satyavati was also a reason for the war if you say satyavati was the reason for the war you will have to say give vishnu is due also so each of them whether it's a yayati all of them actually were a reason for the war which culminated in the at kurukshetra so you cannot say i think the karas and the pandav actually become the flashpoint of a past deteriorating relationship uh, history of relationship uh, which started which starts uh, the discord of let's say uh, uh, sarvishta and devyani starts it all and the selfishness of uh, yayati sort of perpetuates it and then uh, how it, uh, how it uh, affects ashantanu how it affects bhishma and more importantly how it affects an outsider like something because satyavati was an outsider she was not royalty she was not entitled she was anything but uh, and uh, then the last of course is ahilya ahilya i remember when i read her I found her the most boring character in the world. I said, "Oh my God, she never talks. Boring in the sense because she never talks. Because you talk, you hear Gautam Vishy talking, you hear Indra talking. You don't hear her at all. I think she is one of the most mute characters. And everyone is taking decision for her, whether it's a marriage, whether uh, whether it is a forever, whether. And uh, when I when I started reading about her, I realized how sort of patriarchy and changed the uh, social political pattern actually changed the story of ahilya from let's say a devoted wife she sort of suddenly becomes a promiscuous woman from a promiscuous she becomes sort of someone called her a certified uh, <coughs> adulteress now this two extremes again we are talking about when i said over simplified embodiments uh, we talk about from a devoted wife how does she become a uh, adulteress the entire uh, i think the curve is the judgment curve i call it and i think it is a judgment curve we are still shackled by because we still do that we still cast aspersions on people who we don't know we still cast aspersions on something you really don't know what ahilya went through and i think i tried to show the story through ahilya's eyes where she from as you say from the devoted wife she becomes an adulteress why the whole reason is why i'm not interested in the how how everyone knows but why why did she why would she why would she become and then you realize the story of ahilya is a story of again uh, it's a very modern day story where you're talking not only about love and duty you're talking about marriage love loyalty the duties the burden of marriage the disappointments in marriage the uh, the freedom in marriage and what does freedom actually mean so here i was sort of walking a very thin line i was did not want to endorse infidelity nor did i want her to show uh, show ahilya as a victim which she always she is a victim you see her i mean she she is if you actually see vyasi uh, ahilya the original sorry valmiki ahilya the whole decision people want to know whether she knew it was indra or not valmiki ahilya says she knew it was indra so she went voluntarily she knew she was bedding another man beside the husband <clears throat> that is exactly what valmiki wants us to think about 
it changed. It totally got changed. It totally got changed to the level that where he said Indra has raped Ahilya. No, it is not that. She sees through him. She knows he is not doing it. So there is no such deduction by subterfuge at all. No, but he has disguised himself. Yes, but she she does. Yes, he has disguised. I am not. I am not asking about Indra. Indra. He was seducing her by subterfuge by disguise, but he sees through the disguise. She was not fooled by it. That is exactly what happened. So that. Then the whole onus is on her, and that onus is very important. Where she, where it is talking about a woman's right to her sexual desire at that particular point of time, you call it a moment of weakness. Well, she is ready to face that moment of weakness. That is, I think, is the courage of Ahilya. Where not only the courage, where she is convinced that she did it, and she lost a lot. She loses, I mean, she not only the curse, I and mean, she loses her family, uh, her children uh, taken away from her. And uh, she loses everything, but in spite of that, there is um, of course my ending is different from what. Uh, again, there is a very uh, ambi- uh, ambiguous ending for Ahilya. My ending in Ahilya's thing was uh, I was more interested in her she coming to terms with her infidelity, or rather she coming to terms with her decision, she coming to terms with her weakness. I think that I think it is more difficult to forgive yourself than the world forgiving you. And uh, here I have actually tried to say that we are talking about characters like uh, Gautam again, a very huge. He's a scholar. He's a huge character. Uh, and here I'm Gautam is not again. Gautam is so sadly caricaturized. He's sort of an irascible issue who just curses his wife. No, but you see the husband's point of view. He sees his wife in someone uh, with someone else. He is going to get angry. He is the victim also. If you actually see. So here it was not question of who the victim was, who the perpetrator was. Here I think the perpetrator was society itself, because between the husband, wife, and the lover, I think society was more harsh on Ahilya, where she actually turned to stone. And this again turning to stone is a much later story because according to her she sort of verifies, she goes into meditation, and that now I try to interpret her meditation as her way of. Uh, Uh, Reawakening. That is why I said her awakening as another person. So, and I sort of ended with a dialogue between Sita and uh, Ahilya, who are I think the two major biggest examples of uh, victim of patriarchy in today's world. And it's really another thing here I would like to say. It's very unfair that sort of a story which is some thousand years old is to start to measure it in according to our standards now. That is very unfair. So because. We have to realize that there was a different social mores that time. There were different uh, eco-political, uh, social, social thought, social ethos, and you cannot compare it to. You can't. You don't like living the life of your grandmother. What are you talking about? Talking, comparing it with something which happened thousands of. So definitely, I disagree with it. And when I'm writing all my five, five six women, five I'm saying only one nine, five women. They are not my character, so I do not have the uh, really uh, sort of. I have a creative right, but not a moral right to corrupt them. They have to be as they are. I would not when I sort of flesh them out from a skeletal mention. I try to be as rational as believable because I do not want someone saying, "Oh, that Udmila was totally bizarre," or that Ayla was totally not what we thought her to be. So. I sort of redefined my statement when I read Ahilya and I found her reaction boring. I wanted to show her no, she is. In fact, there are so many Ahilyas who are mild, who are unassertive girls, women who do not talk, 
who do not express who sort of and there is they reach a certain breaking point where that culminate that not only culminate that uh, is also the part time where you can call it the moment of weakness whether it could be it could be anything here it is uh, she succumbs to uh, indra seduction but it could be anything so it is not about infidelity or marriage or loyalty or it is we who cast it's also a story of judgment who are we to judge as people on other people it's still happening so easily we talk about you know shaming any shaming so easily whether it's moral whether it's physical whether it's social so i think it is also i think i'll tell a story in more or less about the society i think that's what valmiki always i think as a, when i see him as a author he is putting the questions onto the reader where the onus is on you when we talk about ram and sita we are talking about a ram rajya you talk about a perfect king you talk about a perfect the society rejected her because she was not a perfect queen but was the society perfect itself so when you cast us virgin are you perfect yourself so when whether is sita that's why i said sita and they are the victims of these people of society they are societal victims more than and then we are talking about something good we want in something other something perfect in others are we perfect ourselves so who are we to measure it so i think that is the crux of ailia's story and i think uh, uh ailia's story is also because i'm talking about sita because sure ailia and sita of course never meet the thing is uh, it has uh, it's a very minor episode but it has reverberation right till the end right till the end when actually sita uh the uh, sort of when she she she, she sort of goes back to her so this whole because that is what we are questioning the role of society the role of uh, judgment the role of this whole thing of infidelity having punishment uh sita's was supposed infidelity hers was proven infidelity but who is who are we all to judge whether it's uh, sita or whether it's an ailya so i think the biggest victim was the society itself it was not the husband it was not the lover it was not the people concerned it was the other people who were not connected at all who cast aspersions on them and uh, created a tragedy so again which is a very very modern topic nothing has changed i just want to ask one thing i think i just finish it now because yeah, yeah. i really very yeah. tired I I think I think just give the my you book and uh, uh, thanks uh, so much for enlightening uh, yeah. us about the villain <laughs> character in the book. Oh, I talk for one whole hour. We can yeah. uh, yes, yes. continuously. <laughs> so we can take questions from the audience. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I I just wanted to ask you that uh, you know you have obviously you are artistic license free to. you know call out the characters from each of these you know the epics and stuff but were the authors that you said you mentioned that you know there was a sympathy or he was questioning society or you know whether it's right thing or wrong but these women in each of these epics are very unsung heroes so uh, is it that you have you know transformed them into these powerful women but in fact when they were written about they were you know women who slept for 14 years yes. in depression and all whatever so is it your interpretation and diary or at the time that they were written they meant something uh yeah i think i will uh, let's talk about powerful women 
I'm not uh, interested in writing about powerful women. I'm no, no, I'm telling you, they are not powerful. I'm more interested in complex characters. I tell you very honestly, because Ayla is a complex character. Our issues are complex. Sure. Uh, let's say Urmila is a complex character. So here, I think each person, I would definitely say, uh, as you very rightly said, they are people, they are the women who suffer, some suffer silently, some suffer sort of voice out there. But they are, each of them complex, each of them are strong, given the situation they are in. Because actually, if you say no one wins, they all lose. But in their own personal world, I think in their own battle, they are winning because uh, they are doing things with a certain conviction, with a certain self-realization and there is a certain growth. If you see these characters, whichever they are, any woman character, or I'm talking about since we're talking about women characters, there is a growth. They are minor characters, but there is a growth. That is very important, not only for the narrative, but also for the interest when you see that person. They are not, as I said, they are not caricatures. They are not rounded characters. They are there, even if, even a Shabri. You take the smallest of characters, all of them. Now, if I write a 300 book, page book, she is going to look powerful because the moment she becomes a protagonist, the whole point of view changes. So, so you think she is powerful because I have given her that much of time and space and uh, a voice. I think by lending her a voice, she is asking questions and she wants answers. So that is how she becomes powerful. Yes, Ayla, otherwise as I said, she is a mute character who just sees the tragedy unfolding in her life. Here, yes, it is fiction because they are again balancing fact and fiction is extremely difficult because I have to make it a very believable fiction. I always say this is fiction because please go back to the original stories and see not only that one original story, go to the entire thread, you know, how the story changed over the years, how the story, how Indra changed, even character of Indra has changed. Gautam, of course, is sadly the most caricature, actually he is the most caricaturized. He is a huge, I mean, he is as big a Rishi as, uh, let's say, Vishwamitra. But you see him only in this particular you know Gautam because he's Ayurveda husband, you know, you don't see him for all the And other. the curse that he was told. Exactly. So, here, that's what I said, it's a very small episode and here it's not talking about being powerful. Here I'm more interested women being complex and that is what we are. We are complex creatures. I'm not only talking about women, even men. We are all complex people. We are what we are and there is no black and white in the sense that I tell you why. Uh, a person, no one has... Uh, it's not a question about uh, she being good, bad, uh, immoral, hard, whatever, whatever negative words or positive words you want to say. Person, let's say person A, reacts on situation A well, but you see the same character down the line behaving in a certain different way, where, which actually happens in, in reality. You might be good to a certain person in a certain situation, you might be bad to a certain person, person B in another situation. So what are you? Are you good or are you bad? So when you actually start measuring yourself, it's the same thing. So there is no question of powerful. Because the moment you stereotype it, you know, because stereotyping actually becomes very myopic. Because the moment you stereotype, you don't, you see it in a very different angle. It's not about powerful. When you say she's a powerful, that means other women are weak. No, it is not that. Just because I've given her a voice, she is the heroine of my book, she becomes powerful. Draupadi and Sita are more powerful because it is they are the protagonist of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. No, no, that I completely understand. But when you see, no, no, yeah. But what I'm, no, I'll just illustrate yeah. this. 
when i when you see a gandhari when you see a kunti they are all powerful i think each one deserves a book each one is powerful each one is powerful because they overcome not only the situation around the overcome their own faults i think that is more difficult in the in uh, in humans it's more difficult correcting yourself than the world around you so i think that's what each of the characters did Definitely, because they are not. Was that intended? Was that, or was it because uh, the story sort of demanded it? No, no, all of them. They are not. They are not. See, that is. They are not solitary creatures. They are individuals. You see them as family persons. You see them as people in society. You see them part of power. You see them part of royal. Because all of them are definitely. We are talking about the Shatriya, the Brahmins here. These are the two major, two major. is your sociological uh, social classes which were dealt in so when you are talking about that we are talking about kings so we are talking about power and politics they are the wives of kings and so they are queens they are princesses they are part of it what were marriages marriages were also political alliances so naturally so it is not you cannot be a insulated single solitary creature at all she is a product of whatever is around her and how this whatever is around her how it affects her so Uh, in a Chopra ka it sort of comes out in a more negative way say you know urmila it doesn't come out in a negative way so i think each of them how you react uh, differently how i think so that the whole relatable part was also that's what i said i tried to contemporize it essentially because writing the same story in modern terms i can i can very well write it but no i think the whole thing is linking this with those times that is very important because that shows not only the depth of uh, the chronological time period but also the depth of it because as i said uh, uh, what uh, the text give us what the quran give us uh, uh, is the entire layered uh, aspect of these stories they are not story because one status and one story which is there or one character which is there in the ramayana he changes in the mahabharat in the puran he changes so the stories keep on changing me when i read all of them i try to see when i try to bring i try to identify with a story which which can appeal to the modern reader now without again uh, put a uh, measuring them according to those standards or our standards now so this uh, idea of relatability is the reason why we are still reading a ramayana or a mahabharat or a puranas or they are popular because of the universality universality so thanks to you <laughs> Thanks to you, I think I fell in love with uh, Karna's character, and then read Vikram Jai, which is, and then uh, uh, still kind of 
so things go around in circles there. Uh, just wanted to understand what would be next to the Gandhi. There are so many nice characters in Mahabharata. Oh, they are not women. I think the women are as varied as the vastness of the epic. Because you take any one of them, I mean, you pick and choose any one. Uh, it's there, 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 there. So, uh, as I said, each one of them deserves a book. So I think it's a long story. I mean, I think my lawyer. That I think that is the reason there are a lot of mythological. Uh, there are a lot of authors also. So I think I think we should sort of just sort of delegate it to them. You write some, you write some. But I think yes, but uh, seri but seriously, I think uh, all of them deserve it because all of them are different. Not one character is repeated, you know. If you see, you can't say this story, this character reminds you of someone else. Not at all. Amma was one part. They are, they, are, they are just not there to populate the epic. No, they are, there is a reason why they are there. However small the character. I just want to have a That's a secret. <laughs> that I will not. Uh, just interrupting. All of our books are available here. Uh, you can buy and you can get it off of sign. Yes. You can get the books of the yeah, Exactly, they were all responsible, they are ready to take the responsibility of the decision. So that I think is the strength of this figure. So the original texts are also in this feminist they are also feminist stories. Yes. Right? And they've also involved women along alongside. But now because we're writing and reading them in today's society, we feel that they were a suppressed or now we want to know more about them. But even when they were written originally, they were very powerful. Yes, powerful even then. Like Suprana causing the war, or um, you know, sure. Adropati being so important to the whole narrative. And as a result, even when we're reading about them today, they're relevant because of the way they were written from the very beginning. Of course, yes, because it is. It is a very powerful. They are originally. That's what I said. They are very powerful. Fierce poem. Yeah, epics. Exactly. I mean, it's not just a literary prose. It is a poem. Poem is one of the most difficult. Poetry is one of the most difficult way of writing. And it is powerful. So, the whole effect. Imagine the gigantic effect it will lead to originally. If you know Sanskrit and uh, not even Sanskrit, I mean, if you go to Prakrit, if you start reading them, they are powerful. Each character is powerful. Not only the women, even the men. And the men also have their flaws. They are flawed. The whole beauty is. In the flawedness, for the flawed characters, all of them are flawed. Even we tend to see Ramayana like that, but Ramayana we are talking about. I think uh, the, the biggest text, subtext of uh, Ramayana is we talk about the brotherhood in Ramayana. We see the brothers, we see four brothers, we see Kumbhakarna, and, but we don't see the sister. So I think uh, Sita's sister was actually about the sisterhood in the Ramayana. You see Sita and all the women who who meet up with her, whether it's Lok Mudra, all the Rishis like. There is a certain sisterhood, or even with Rijata when she's in the forest, when in the garden, uh, in Lanka. There is, by within through those relationships, there is a certain 
sisterhood and that is the empowerment of you are talking about because women help women this whole narrative about women being women's worst enemy is again an extremely misogynistic concept yes. it is yes. very yes. convenient no but you see yeah. the people who actually help sita are the women yeah you don't i mean it is so beautifully woven in the ramayana the sisterhood of ramayana we never see whether it is the four sisters whether it is the three queens whether it is uh, sita later relationship with all the different women whom she meets in her exile they are all different stories ahilya she doesn't meet but ahilya story it start it sort of a reminder so this whole thing of the empowerment came through helping each other you have to support you have to help women what in mandodari i mean mandodari is actually a physical character who stops ravan from touching her she is there for that it's the very fact that she is not allowed to enter the palace because of that so this whole thing of that each of them has a reason so i think we we don't they are not exalted characters who are not linked no they are all very well beautifully linked and i think uh, one of the big, most beautiful aspect of the ramayana is the sisterhood in the ramayana and chitra rajuna book writes about the mandodari really well when she is actually trying giving her a perspective and a voice as well so that's enough thank thanks uh, kavita thank you for uh, coming all the way from pune to be here to enlighten us about the women characters from the epics and the puranas and i would like to thank everyone present here for taking out time from your busy busy schedule to be here to be part of the event and thanks and the academy team team and thanks the canvas queen and canvas thank you everyone and i hope you enjoyed the evening absolutely and sorry but i think i am a little tired now so i think i didn't realize that book for an hour but i hope you like the i hope you like my books and i hope i can get to them can you sign Yeah, you can also sign the book. Yeah, yeah, of course. And thank you, Indic Academy. Thanks a lot, and for getting giving me this platform and opportunity to meet everyone. And I think let's do some book signing. Yeah. Yeah.